Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. Maria Mercedes is a first-generation Australian. She grew up in the Melbourne suburb of Brunswick, surrounded by other Greek families, and she couldn't speak a word of English when she started school. But early participation in television talent shows, like Young Talent Time and New Faces, garnered the young Mercedes two significant wins and the attention of an industry keen to celebrate her glorious vocal prowess. Maria Mercedes has become one of Australia's most engaging and enduring performers. She's carved a stellar career as actor, singer and recording artist. Her voice continues to captivate completely. It has the unique ability to reach into an audience and thrill. It is equal parts power and vulnerable humanity. A succession of theatre roles are the envy of any music theatre performer. She's been celebrated as Louisa Contini in Nine, Grisabella in Cats, and has electrified audiences in star turns as Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard and Maria Callas in Masterclass. Maria joined stages to examine some of those performances and to relish the opportunities she has had in a challenging, surprising, but always satisfying career. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Maria Mercedes, it's wonderful to have you uh, as a guest on stages. I've admired you from afar for many, many years. Have you just? (laughs) I have indeed. I've been a bit of a fanboy. So it's lovely to chat. Lovely to chat. We're recording this conversation on the day that the great Helen Reddy has passed. Can we, can we perhaps start with me asking you what she meant to you as, as a vocalist and perhaps also as a performer? Well, look, when Helen Reddy first kind of burst into, you know, my peripheral as a, I don't know, maybe I was 12 or 13 at the time, um, and she she was singing a song called I Am Woman and I thought, wow, that's amazing. And all of a sudden as a 13-year-old or so, I felt quite proud to be a woman and I thought, A, she, she's really um, connecting to me and obviously she connected to you know, millions of other people. But what a way for me to kind of be introduced to the to the world of performing and, and pop music because I love pop music. Um, she was a, a stunning singer and she was very political, I guess, for her time. And I'll never forget when she, when she won her Grammy and she thanked God as a she, though. And yeah. <laughs> that kind of blew everybody away, right? The heart of Nashville also, which is a, a very much a yeah. Bible belt, yeah. I hadn't met Helen, but um, I had met her sister, Tony, and I worked with Tony Sheldon several times. So, you know, six degrees of separation, I guess. Um, Tony and I did a show for the opening of Mike Walsh's Hayden Room back in the day at uh, the Orpheum, I think. The, the um, Cremorne Orpheum, yes. Yes, correct. And he did. he wrote a show specifically for himself and myself to do called wherefore art thou cabaret um and i guess that was the first time i met his mum too tony um so yeah it's a it's a today i'm thinking about tony and and his mum and and their family you know more so than anything else a big loss of course helen had a terrific career in the theater also 
she did Blood Brothers and several musicals. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. 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 No, she was very much revered and loved and um, because she was very honest and what you saw is exactly who she was, I guess. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, nice just to remember Helen Reddy. Yes. May she rest in peace. Who are the other vocalists that you've admired through your career that you've... Oh, gee. Look, my very first admiration would have been Shirley Temple. <laughs> <laughs> On the good ship Lollipop. Yeah, well, look, when we were kids, you know, we were stuck at home. Mum and Dad, you know, were working class, working in factories and, and television was our babysitter. So, you know, whatever we watched on TV had a major influence on us. And uh, Shirley Temple, I used to wag Greek school so I could watch Shirley Temple films. But um, moving right along, I think <laughs> Shirley Bassey was, a, I guess, the very first um, female singer that influenced me greatly. I just loved you know, how passionate she was and how, you know, it may seem exaggerated, but it really connected with me. And um, and I sang quite a lot of Shirley songs earlier on in my career, particularly when I was a contestant on Young Talent Time and New Faces. Yeah, I did This Is My Life at 16. At 16. <laughs> a long life. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, quite quite a lot a lot of her songs. Yeah, I loved her. Um, gee, who else? Uh, look, I just love a whole gamut of different genres of of performers and singers. You know, um, Janis Joplin. You know, who would think? Carol King was a, a huge influence, and and I still play that Tapestry album. Yeah, so yeah, yeah it's, it's it's really kind of hard to to come up with a plethora of, of the singers that I love, but they're well, out I, there. I think what all those women have in common is that they're great storytellers. Correct, correct. And though Shirley never wrote her own songs, boy, she was an amazing interpreter. And that's what it's about. It's about telling stories, yeah. Maria, can you recall the first words you spoke as a child or have you been told what they were? <laughs> Look, both my mum and dad are gone now, so I can't really ask them. I don't know. That's a, that's a great question, actually. I have no idea. All I know is that I started running away from home at the age of two. I started walking at nine months. And my mum and dad would laugh when they would recall this story that we'd go out visiting relatives um, and as soon as we'd, you know, get through the front door, I'd be saying, you know, I want to go out again. And my mum was forever chasing me down the street in Carlton where I, you know, was born. That's the first suburb I kind of lived in, yeah. You know, it would have been a Greek word. I never, I didn't know how to speak English until I um, attended primary school at a late age, actually. I didn't start school till about seven. And I didn't speak one word of English. English is a fiendishly difficult language to learn, I, I would imagine. How did you cope? I, look, I don't really think it's a difficult language. I just think because I wasn't exposed to it and mum and dad spoke Greek at home and I lived in a neighbourhood of, of European families and children and I heard Italian and 
and um, you know Yugoslav and all sorts of of languages. Mind you, we did have TV, and and obviously that was all in English, but it didn't kind of compute with me that it was, you know, a language I had to speak until I arrived at school, and and I was totally shocked that I couldn't understand a word of what they were telling me. <laughs> so no, but I learned pretty quickly, and uh, I made sure to to teach my younger sister English before she attended school because I didn't want her to suffer the same same kind of difficulties and and um yeah it was quite traumatic to be honest so was there, there bullying at school there was a lot of racism when i was growing up yeah. um that whole white australian policy was very very deeply entrenched within you know the communities um yeah i never felt um, that I was part of of Australia per se. Um, we were always picked on at school because we looked different. Our lunches were different. Like my mother insisted on having, you know, Greek lunches, which didn't really go down well when you're trying to assimilate. Not when she's got garlic meatball sandwiches for you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was really, really hard. Uh, to the point where my sister and I would throw away our lunches before we get to school um, because we just didn't want an, an added harassment, you know. Um, so, yeah, to answer the question, yeah, I don't think it was bullying. I just think it was ostracising and certainly not made to feel welcome. And I don't blame children because children have to learn that kind of behaviour from adults. You know, even though we were attending school and, and, you know, the age groups were our age groups um, and the ostracising and, and the name-calling, the wog and, you know, spag and uh, what have you got for lunch, it stinks and all that, you know. I don't think our children innately um, possess racism i think it's a taught thing and so i believe it, it came from their parents which was yeah. you know yeah. absolutely you've got to be carefully taught yeah um careful of what you say children will listen will and listen. that's from a song yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely so did your folks travel to australia together or did they they meet here no they met they met in melbourne my father first arrived um, in Canberra, believe it or not. And he actually went to English school because he, he really wanted to embrace Australia. And, and um, you know, my dad was always a very forthright, um, passionate, all-embracing kind of human being. And and I think about it, you know, they, they travelled on a ship for three months to a country where they didn't even speak the language or didn't even have any idea what it would be like. And that takes such courage. Um, I know I wouldn't do it. And so he arrived in Canberra, stayed there, fell in love with an Australian woman. And so he wrote back to his dad because in those days people wrote letters. And so my grandfather said, no, if you're going to get married in Australia, you make sure you find a Greek woman. So my father left Canberra brokenhearted and he went to Melbourne and was working at GMH, which was General Motors Holden, 
met um, a man called Maki, uh, which was, I guess, short for Michael, and another man called Chris. Maki invited my dad, George, and Chris over for Sunday lunch. And lo and behold, two of his sisters had arrived from Greece. So there was a lovely lunch introduction, and at the end of the lunch, my uncle pronounced, well, you've met each other, what do you think? Because <laughs> if you like each other, I reckon you should get engaged. And so there and then, my dad got engaged to my mother, Dionysia, and my uncle Chris, who became my uncle, got engaged to my Aunt Maria. So that's how quickly it worked back in the day. Yeah, that's a very quick courtship. <laughs> it had to be. I think they just kind of, I don't know, reconstructed a Greek village in the heart of Melbourne. Yeah. 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 So was singing an expression at home? Uh, was there a musical life in your home? Look, there was always Greek music at home. My mother always sang around the house when she cooked or did, you know, housework. My mother, in fact, had a beautiful voice. And, you know, every weekend the relatives would be over or we would go over to them and there was always Greek music and, and whatever music was on television as well. So I really loved music and uh, I, I didn't know whether I could sing or not, but I, I know that I loved it. And I think the first time I was told that I could sing was in primary school. You know, in the 60s, we used to have radio broadcasts of... Um, yeah, it was called Let's I, Sing, wasn't it, from the ABC? Was it Let's no, Sing? We had, we, had, we, we had little books to sing from. Correct. That's exactly right, Peter. And um, I was just singing along. And as soon as we finished, I looked up and my teacher was sitting opposite me and he said, you have a beautiful voice. And that was the first time I ever had been told that. And I think I was about 10 at the time. So, yeah. But I love singing and I, and I love music from a very, very young age. Have you ever wondered how life might have been if you'd been born in Greece and, and grown up there? Do you think you would have been a performer? I think so. I yeah. think so. Um, but maybe not. You know, I've, often ask myself and people have asked me why I got into performing um, at school. You know, I really, really wanted to fit in and I wanted to be loved and embraced um, and I didn't want to feel different. And I guess, you know, I was the school clown. I was always singing on top of desktops in high school, you know, impersonating anybody from Tom Jones to Cat Stevens to Roy Orbison. Um, and it was a way of me, you know, being popular, not to show off per se, but to feel that I was accepted. That was yeah. the difference. Hmm. Uh, in a, a, an episode recently on this program, I had uh, the great actor Tony Taylor, who talked about his first job as a drama teacher and you were oh. his prized pupil, he said. <laughs> We love Tony. All us girls used to swoon over Tony Taylor. Oh, we loved him so much. Um, lo and behold, we did know that he batted for the other team, but that's okay. But let me <laughs> tell you something. To, just to, to cut to the chase, you know, because I, I left high school um, to pursue my career. And in 1987, I think I left in about 70. 
four or five, I left school, high school. And in 1987, we had just finished a performance of Nine, the musical, at the Comedy Theatre. And in those days, it wasn't as strict. You know, if you had friends who came to the stage door, they'd come through and, and go to your dressing room. Well, anyway, there I am with Peter Tapano and Jackie Reese in a dressing room. And the door opens and I look into my mirror and first of all, Tony Sheldon walked through, um, who I hadn't not, I, I didn't know who Tony was at, at that stage because I was so theatre illiterate. And followed in um, was Tony Taylor and all I could say was, Mr Taylor! Because <laughs> I just <laughs> totally went back to being that high school girl again. And he walked in and he had tears streaming down his face. It was just such a beautiful moment, you know. And it was teachers like Tony who really encouraged me, you know, particularly with drama because he was my drama teacher and my English teacher. And, um, yeah, you, you remember a few of your teachers. Um, sometimes it's because they were rotten to you or they were absolutely wonderful to you and... and yeah, I, I love Tony Taylor to this day. Adore him. So, being the class clown, was, was that a survival mechanism for you in school? Yeah, absolutely. The more people that laughed, the more people that talked about me, I thought, wow, okay, that's another day done, you know. Yeah, it was pretty hard. And I, and I think back to the day, it was such a struggle to make sure that you know, I wasn't turned away, that my my darling sister, Eleni, you know, she found it very difficult, but being quieter and not as explosive in personality as myself, she found it really very difficult to have friends and, and find friends at school. And, and I remember to this day that really, really breaks my heart. She used to come up to me, you know, during recess or lunch breaks and and I'd say to her, you can't hang out with me because if you hang out with me, then no one will want to hang out with me. And, um, yeah, it kind of breaks my heart when I think that, you know, the struggle to fit in as a, as a first-generation Greek-Australian um, was so tough that you kind of sacrificed your loved ones in order to fit in. Yeah. Hmm. So this urge to be a performer, did you think about what you would do with that? Were you thinking about maybe going to NIDA to train to be an actor? But, or did Young Talent Time come along way before you even had time to think of that? Well, look, um, when I was about 13, I said to my dad, I want to be an actor or an actress. And dad said, oh, I don't know about that. Um, but I saw a twinkle in his eye because I knew my dad was was a cross between Errol Flynn and, and Clark Gable in looks, very suave. Wow. And when he was about 18, 19, he was walking down a street in Thessaloniki in Greece and a producer approached him and said, I really love your look and um, if you're willing to train, we will train you to become an actor. And my dad just flipped out he went back home and again asked his father you know that's what they did the respectful thing yeah. they want to groom me to be an actor and my grandfather said well that is the lowest profession on the planet no you cannot so when I had the same um 
compelling feelings and and you know urge to become a, an actor my my dad kind of understood and he didn't want history to repeat itself so even though he was quite poor um he found the money to send me to acting school and i attended a school called the william bates academy of dramatic art in carlton and it was on top of a petrol station and i'd go every saturday morning for my acting classes and my elocution lessons and mr bates <laughs> he was so old school um but you know that's where i cut my teeth i mean he used to lock me in a room and get me to repeat you know paragraphs over and over while he used to tape he was trying to get rid of i guess that that greek australian accent that i had we mustn't forget it was the greeks who invented theater also well yes they did um well look you know they are attributed to having created theater theater was very important in greece um in the ancient times because it was a way to you know pass on knowledge and stories and i think the greek culture was the one of the very few cultures that believe that every um citizen should be literate and know how to read and and write um regardless of of how how rich or poor you were at the time time heals everything tuesday thursday time heals everything april august if i singing at that point in time but that whole thing to fit in you know young talent time came along and the kids at school said you should go on young talent time i had no you know inclination of wanting to go on young talent time but i thought well they want me to go on young talent time so i'll go on as a joke you know i continued that schoolroom joke further so i went to audition and I was petrified nothing came out of my my mouth but god bless leslie shaw wherever she is um she heard something in me and she said look obviously you're very inexperienced we're going to send you to a teacher you need to start some singing classes um and we recommend you go to voila richie who was john farnham's teacher at the time Right. And a whole gamut of other singers from Ricky Springfield to Jamie Redfern um yeah quite a lot of people. So my dad bless him had to find some more money to send me to singing classes now. Um and so yeah 6 months later I went back. Um I didn't win my heat but Leslie kept pushing and she said I want you back in another 6 months time when you've got you know even more experience under your belt and lo and behold i won my heat my semi-finals my quarter-final semi-finals and then i had to wait for the finals i thought what should i do okay i will telegram because we had telegrams back in the day i will telegram new faces and so 
immediately I get a telegram back the following day, yes, we'd love to have you. And so concurrently I was competing on New Faces and Young Talent Time and I won both the same year. Wow, wow. And they were on different networks too, I guess. They were. One was on Channel 9 and the other was on Channel 10. Would never be allowed today. No. <laughs> You'd never be able to get away with that. Then you'd have yeah. to sign your life over to a recording studio and they'd own you for 10 years and yes. Correct. That were the good old days that you experienced. Well, they were. Young Talent Time, you were being adjudicated by Evie Hayes and, and Ron Tudor, I guess. I was. Ron, oh, yeah, I was, definitely. Um, Evie was, was so um, encouraging. You know, I I didn't know anything about Evie Hayes. Little did I know that she was such a, a huge musical theatre star herself back in the day. And, you know, all this was new to me. I, I had no idea about the industry. But people were very encouraging and, and I was this young girl with a big voice and, and I guess I was one of the first... Um, well, I hate to use this term, but uh, I guess an immigrant who had kind of started to make a path for themselves. I know a lot of the, the Greeks and the Italians uh, at the time really, really were very proud of me that finally there was someone of, of their background that was on television. It's very, it's important for people to identify with their own their own kind, I guess. Um, but I think there was someone before me, Helen Zerifos. Helen Zerifos, indeed. Yes. She was on Bandstand and, and all sorts of um, TV variety shows. So, no, I, I wasn't the first. Helen was, I believe. Maria, I know you changed your name to Mercedes. Were you Maria Mercedes when you did the uh, New Faces and Young Talent Time? No, I wasn't. I was Maria Mootsidis and... As soon as I won Young Talent Time, I was uh, asked to go on the Graham Kennedy show uh, to sing on that. And so I did. And Graham made a big fuss over my name, you know, stumbling over it, not being able to pronounce it. But he just used it as a gag. Yeah. You know, Mootsidis isn't that hard to pronounce. No. And so Kevin Lewis, the producer of, of Young Talent Time, said, look, I think we're going to have issues with your name. I think we've got to find a name that is kind of similar, but, you know, that people can wrap their, their tongue around and remember. And he said, I think we should call you Maria Mercedes and Mercedes after my belo beloved car. So I thought, okay, you know, here I was, 16, 17, very vulnerable and, you know, was doing as I was told. So I went home to tell my dad. I said, Dad, they want to change my name to Mercedes. He said, what's wrong with Mutsidis? It's a good Greek name. <laughs> it is. Maybe it's a Greek name, <laughs> but no one can pronounce it apparently. So, yeah, I changed it. And you know what? I have regrets about that. I really do. I think if I was starting out now, I wouldn't have changed it. Well, the kids starting now certainly don't feel that need to change it anymore. But it, it was a, a time, I guess, what, that 70s, 80s, where, where whether you were Greek, Italian, Vietnamese, you, you felt that it had yeah. to be anglicised. 
instead of hanging on to totally. those beautiful, beautiful names. Yeah, you know, everybody had to kind of conform to what uh, the Anglo mentality was, you know. Um, but look, you know, it's also happened in America as well. Australia's not the only country that has kind of inflicted that upon their performers. Sometimes people have very plain names and they need to make them sound a little bit more exotic. You know, that's happened as well. But look, it was what it was. And it's interesting. I went on Wikipedia recently just to see what other crap people are writing about me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there, there are boring times in Melbourne at the moment, I see. There are, there are. <laughs> um, and, but it's listed me as Maria Mutsidis, known as Maria Mercedes. Wow, that's nice. And I think, well, whoever did that, Thank you very much if you're listening. That's really, really cool. So winning, winning those competitions at such a young age, were you able to keep your feet on the ground? How did success affect you? Um, look, I never let it get to my head. I was never that kind of person. It was really weird. After I won Young Talent Time and, you know, I was exposed to, you know, Australia nationwide, and, you know, I was just carrying on as normal and I'd walk into a shop and then people would just start staring at me and I thought, why are they staring at me? And then I'd have to remind myself of why, you know. It became increasingly difficult to stay at school um, because of, you know, kids pointing out and, you know. And also I got a little bit harassed too, you know. You know, some kids thought that, I was thinking that I was better than them when that wasn't the case at all. And really, I didn't want to stay at school any further. I just wanted to pursue my career. I was being, I was assigned a manager at the time by Lewis Young Productions, which unfortunately was not a good fit for me. Um, he ended up being a bit of a charlatan and, and because I was underage, he supposedly opened up a bank account for me where all my money was going into. And my poor dad would go there every week saying, could we see the, the balance of what Maria has earned? You know, and he would always make excuses and, and give me $100 here and there. So, yeah, I, I, just, I just wanted to work hard and, and, um, and pursue this passion. And, and I was being, you know, sent off to, to do these concerts around Australia with other artists such as Dennis Walter and, Jamie Redfern and Philip Gould at the time and Gordon Boyd. I don't know if you remember Gordon Boyd from Showcase. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah. So I'd probably be attending school maybe one day every two weeks. And the headmaster at the time at Brunswick High School called my dad in and me and he said, look, it's either this newfound career or she has to finish her schooling. She can't just be away for weeks and then come back and try and catch up. It's not going to work. So my dad being very liberal-minded, he was very different to, to a lot of um, the other kind of European men that I knew at the time. He wasn't, look, he was, he was strict, but he, was, he also gave me liberty as well. Um, and he asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, I'd rather pursue what I'm doing. So I left school at 17. And I lived to regret it. 
I should have finished school. And I tell this to young performers all the time who have itchy feet to leave school, finish your schooling. So that they, you have a qualification, something to fall back on or in those lean absolutely. times? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've had, I've had times of being very, very lean um, throughout my life. Um, and, yeah, because I was going through personal hardship and when you're going through personal hardship, you're not going to attract the things that are needed in your career because your focus isn't on your career. So, yeah, uh, if I'd had something else to fall upon to, then times wouldn't have been as hard as they were. What sort of gigs are you getting uh, when you're starting your career? You're singing in bands, you're in concerts, uh, you're doing clubs. When I started? Yeah, and your, fir your first gigs before the theatre career but, takes off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My first gigs were, as I said, concerts, television, um, floor shows, as they call them, cabaret as we know it now. But I also had an acting agent, uh, Valerie Adern, um, who, you know, I was guest rolling on, on things like Homicide and Division 4 and, and Matlock Police and um, I did Patrick as well the original Patrick. So I had, a, I had my acting career on, on one end and then I had the singing on the other. And they too had not met at this point in time. Patrick, that great cult Australian horror film. Um, and you got to do the sequel as well, didn't you? I did, lo and behold, because the director, who was such a, a huge fan of, of, you know, films, of the Renaissance period of, of Australian filmmaking had done a documentary about, you know, Australian films and, and he wanted to make a remake. And so he, he tried to gather as many of the original cast members as possible um, to appear in, in cameo roles. And I was quite chuffed actually. I still haven't seen it, believe it or not. <laughs> I do have it. I have bought it and I will watch it. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question before, yeah, you know, my, my original singing career was, yeah, I was on television every week on some television variety show, whether it was Bandstand, the Daryl Summers Bandstand, or, you know, um, Graham Kennedy, Bert Newton, Don Lane, who I absolutely adored. He was a, a huge champion of mine, as was Bert. So, yeah, they're the things I did. My husband makes movies To make them he makes himself obsessed He works for weeks on end without a bit of rest No other way can he achieve his level best Some men read books Some shine their shoes Some retire early when they've seen the evening my husband only rarely comes to bed My husband makes movies instead My husband makes movies 
much, Mrs. Comtini. Let's talk about some of your theatre triumphs. I mean, you, uh, you, the list of roles that you've played and the musicals you've done, uh, you know, Louisa Contini in Nine, Grisabella in Cats, Svetlana in Chess, Norma Desmond, Sunset Boulevard, Mama Morton. I mean, the list goes on. It would be the envy of any musical theatre performer. You must be well, chuffed yeah. with some of those, those moments on stage. Look, I, I am, and I, I never envisaged a musical theatre career. Musical theatre was not in my, you know, was not something that I felt I was suited for, even though the, the, the darling Betty Pounder at the time in the 70s, um, she saw something in me I, I hadn't realised yet and she got me to audition for Godspell for the Americans. And if you remember that scene in Funny Girl when Barbara Streisand her character is on stage with all the other dancers and she's, she's bumping into everybody and just, it's just a, such a mess. Well, that was yeah. my audition. It was a huge mess. <laughs> Were you on roller skates? <laughs> correct. <laughs> I thought, you know, Betty, I'm never going to do musical theatre, though I wanted to and I loved it, but I love things like Jesus Christ Superstar and, and I remember them wanting me for the Rocky Horror Show as well in the 70s, um, which didn't kind of transpire. But lo and behold, in 1985, after having a career of singing on TV and concerts, having my own rock bands, doing the acting, um, I was asked to play Magenta in the Rocky Horror Show for an Australian tour directed by Peter Beatty, who was Reg Livermore's... Um, Betty Blockbuster director. director. Yeah, yeah. And so... This is how precocious I was about musical theatre. I had a meeting with Peter and we sat and we talked about the Rocky Horror Show. And he's, you know, we're having a lovely chat. And I think I was a little bit up myself because after we started talking about me, I started interviewing him and I wanted to know his credentials and I wanted to know where he was from. Anyway, he talked. <laughs> <laughs> he told me later, once we had started rehearsals and open over a lovely lunch or actually breakfast in, in Queensland at our motel, he said, you made me laugh. I laughed so much. He said, he thought, I have to have that girl. Because, <laughs> you know, I was your typical Greek Australian, you know. I want to know more about you. <laughs> so, yeah, well, so I did... I, Important oh, to have sorry. someone you like in the rehearsal room. Correct, correct. You know, um, so, I saw that Rocky yeah. Horror Show in Ballarat. You did. Yes, you were oh, on did, tour that's there. That's right. We did Ballarat. I saw your magenta. The thing I remember because that Ballarat uh, Her Majesty's stage has a rake on it. Doctor Scott's wheelchair kept rolling forward <laughs> <laughs> towards the lip of the stage. That's <laughs> right, Glenn Shorrock, to be exact. Yes. So yeah. I, I did the Rocky Horror Show for six months. We toured around Australia and I absolutely loved it. And I thought, wow, if this is musical theatre, this is something I'd really like to do. Um, so that was 85. Two years later, uh, well, actually a year and a half later, John Dietrich asked me to audition for Nine. And I bought the album 
and I listened to the two songs of, of the character that I was meant to audition for. And, you know, every time I have felt this deep connection with the music and the songs and the character, and it's not a, a conceited thing, it's, it's you really know that this role is meant for you. I was still nervous auditioning um, but uh, I did my first audition and you know uh, came back for, for my last audition and it was Christmas of 86 and just as I was leaving the audition room John called out he said I'd like to tell you I said yes <laughs> he said you've got the part I said he said Merry Christmas and it was a Merry Christmas so yeah Nine was the thing that really, really, you know, uh, started everything for me as far as musical theatre goes. And I, and I have John Dietrich to thank for that because no other producer would have ever cast me uh, in a, you know, a big musical like that with no proven track record. Um, and so from Nine, I did Cats and I did Chess Nine, yeah, nine, is, nine is one of my five top nights in the theatre, I think. I mean, it was such a, a show of elegance and, and sophistication. Uh, yeah. The cast looked sensational also. I mean, the costumes that you all got to wear. Costumes are pretty important to an actor, aren't they? They certainly are. And, um, you know, particularly with the Nine musical, Roger Kirk was our, you know, costume designer. Um, and I remember he took me shopping to Myers, and I tried on this beautiful Jaeger suit and it looked gorgeous. And I thought, wow, this is what I'm going to wear. He said, no, I just wanted to see what a Chanel suit inspired suit looks like on you. And he went away and designed his own, but don't forget the first half of nine, we're all in black. And then the same costumes are emulated in the second act, but all in white, except for my character and John. We stay in black throughout the whole whole show. But they are. A, a costume has to be so... You have to feel like you've been wearing that all your life, you know. Um, Thank you very much, very Mrs. Good. Contini. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think I've heard that cast that cast album so many times. It's a it's a glorious uh, recording of that show. It won a, a, a few awards too, didn't it? That cast album. Well, it won an Aria Award back in the day in '88, when the Arias were nothing like what they are these days. I mean, I remember it. We it was a, a beautiful sit down dinner at a posh hotel in Sydney, and you know all the. Um, recording company execs and and special guests from overseas were there. I remember, I'm sure Brian Ferry was there that night um, presenting. I seem to think that even George Michael was there, but I could have been imagining. But it was a, it was a very uh, intimate affair. And, uh, yeah, uh, we won for best soundtrack, either film or, or theatre. Yeah, it was a big night. Maria, during research, I don't know if you've ever pondered this, but can you answer this for me? Um, what do these four women have in common? Elaine Page, Betty Buckley, Deborah Byrne and Maria Mercedes. Well, we've all played Grizabella, haven't we? Yes, and you've all, all played Norma Desmond. And we've all played Norma Desmond. Yes. How's that for a club? That's so not a bad club to be part of. That's a very good club indeed. But but what does that say about the voice? There's obviously some sort of um, uh, vocal quality that's required for both of those roles. I mean, they're both composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber, of course. I think if if we if he had kept the uh, the score uh, as he originally wrote it, and you know, um, Paddy Lapone played Norma Desmond originally. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether it would have suited my voice as much as it did later on when Glenn Close played Norma and so the keys were changed, the keys were dropped and so I think it, it, it was a better fit for my voice uh, and for all the other actresses as well that, that played Norma. All you need to the way he writes um he really wants that voice to tether on it could it could break at any moment he he really loves that danger he loves to hear that danger in the voice and that danger was also evident in love never dies um with madame giri when she comes out of that pod uh at the end of act one and that last note that that I have to execute, that is right on the brink. You know, you have to do it in your chest because that's the only way that you can execute that danger and that drama, I guess. He's a very clever writer. He's been criticised a lot, but I think he really, really knows how to, how to write for the female voice. Poor old Grizabella. And I told him. I told him. Yeah. Playing 
as anything, I said, Andrew, I have to say that Sunset Boulevard has to be my all-time favourite of everything you've ever written. He said, it's my favourite also, but it's been my least successful. (laughs) (laughs) Generally the way, isn't it? (laughs) Always, yeah. Poor old Grizabella's on a downer all night and, and of course, Norma Desmond's in a state of hysterics all through the show and, and Madame Giri's a bit of an introvert. I mean, is it tough to play a character, play those characters with such emotional states all night? I mean, are you able to just throw that off at the end of the night or do you carry a bit of it with you? I think with Cats is a hard one. That, that really um, used to disturb me a lot playing Grizabella because unlike the other characters um, who are on stage most of the time, the role of Grizabella, she kind of comes on and off and she's very secluded most of the time. And uh, I've heard this from other actresses who've, who've played, um, who've played Grizabella that it really, really unravels them. And I felt that, at the time as well. And also having to sing that iconic song and making sure that, you know, you hit that touch me, it's so easy to leave me. Um, I, I developed a thing. I, I was petrified to, to go out and sing that number night after night because I knew people are waiting for that, for that soaring, you know, section of that song. And so a soaring section that, that can touch, touch, touch your soul, can't it? <laughs> you know, absolutely. Um, in the audience. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot riding on it, though, as well. And that pressure really, really got to me. Hmm. That's all I want to say. What do you do for <laughs> vocal care uh, when you're playing those roles? Uh, do you lead a monastic existence? Do you, do you not speak during the day? How do you care for your voice? Oh, look, I'd love to say that I'm really disciplined. But, <laughs> You're a party um, girl. <laughs> I'm not really a party girl. I don't really drink, to be honest. Um, and definitely when I'm working, I don't drink. I might enjoy one glass of red wine at the end of the week. With Norma Desmond, uh, I actually alternated with, with the amazing Deborah Byrne. And so, you know, initially I was doing two shows a week. Um, and so I would rehearse every day in preparation because it was, it was huge. That's all I can say. It was huge. And then when, um, you know, it ended up being eight shows a week for me for a while. Yeah, I was very, very, very quiet during the day. Um, and just processing that journey because it's it is a train you're on that train at the beginning of of sunset boulevard and it is a plethora of emotions and you know all those songs to sing but i have to say as much as it terrified me i absolutely adored it as well Define for us what it's like in the wings just before you're taking your, making your first entrance as Norma. Uh, there are nerves, I imagine. Uh, what are you doing? How do you psych yourself up? The very first time? 
Yeah, your first entrance, just when you're in the wings as a performer. Oh, okay. I'm just psyching myself up and centering myself and getting into her soul and totally forgetting that I am Maria Mercedes. It's the only way, you know, you have to immerse yourself 150% when it comes to a role like that. So I'm just, I'm just psyching myself up. Do you arrive at the theatre early when you're performing? Well, it depends what role I'm doing. Certainly for anything as, as huge as Sunset um, or Callis, Maria Callis in Masterclass, yeah, you, you do need to arrive early and, and really ground yourself. But uh, some roles, you just arrive at that hour call. Ready to have fun. Ready to have fun. <laughs> yeah. It just you, depends what, on the role. What's your dressing space like, your dressing room space? Well, full of pictures, um, pictures pertaining to uh, the theme of the show that I'm doing. Um, I always have a photo of my family and my animals. Yeah, aromatherapy. It's, 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 it's very zen and it's very lively. Yeah. Do you have, do you have a favorite uh, composing team or composer? Cause you've done a couple of um, Candor and Ebb shows too. I'm, I'm heading into that territory now with Chicago and Zorba. Yeah. Um, as far as musical theater goes, uh, look, I, I love Andrew Lloyd Webber. I love Sondheim. I adore Candor and Ebb. Um, Benny and Bjorn. They wrote a fantastic score for chess. I don't see a reason to be lonely. I could take my chances further down the line. And if that girl I knew should ask my It's hard to pinpoint just one because I think they all have such merit and they give, and you know, the roles that I've done um, performing these different composers works, you know, they, they've all added to, to my fragrance as a performer, you know, to my jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. So it's, it's hard like, to pinpoint one. It's like choosing a favorite child, isn't it? <laughs> Correct. You've yeah. hit that nail on the head. <laughs> <laughs> Maria Callas in Masterclass. I mean, a review said, as Callas, Mercedes is passionate and intimidating with an air of grace and grandeur. They're not bad adjectives. Not bad at all, are they? Look, Masterclass came about at a time when I was... Um, I'd finished doing Love Never Dies. Uh, the year was two thousand and. 
14 and I was, I don't know, I was at crossroads and I had spoken to a good friend of mine, Anthony Brandon Wong, and I was saying, I don't know whether I want to continue anymore. Um, I just don't know what other avenues there are out there that will keep me, you know, passionate and excited. He said, you need to do a workshop with the great Elizabeth Kemp from the Actor Studio from New York. And it was the dream workshop. Now, Elizabeth, you know, has worked with Bradley Cooper, um, with Hugh Jackman, just some amazing people. And so I thought, yeah, I'll give it a go. So I did this workshop for a week and you have to bring a character. And I didn't know what character I was going to work on. And one morning I woke up and I thought, I'm going to do Maria Callas. That's who I'll bring into the room. I'll bring Maria Callas in. I don't know why, but I did. And so for a week, there was all this improvisation with other actors and their characters. And it was, it was almost like a rebirth. It's very, very difficult to describe Elizabeth Kemp's um, technique. All I can say was that I was reborn um, as an artist. My heart was torn apart and I was ready to receive again. And it was a baptism, I guess. And the last thing that Elizabeth said to me, well, at the end of, of that week, um, which was an extraordinary week, God bless her soul, um, because she did pass away in 2017. She said, you have to do the play masterclass. I thought, okay, I don't know how that's going to happen. Um, and she said, I'd love to direct you in it. A month later, literally, I get an email from Cameron Lukey, producer. Um, we're wanting to produce Masterclass and we're wondering if you're interested in playing Maria Callas. Like, how's that for serendipity? How's that for getting the universe to give you what you've asked for? Yeah. And I had a meeting with Cameron and the director, brilliant Daniel Lemon and Michelle Bauer, the other producer, and I walked in Maria's shoes, you know, for two seasons at 45 Downstairs and at the Hayes in Sydney. And my, uh, my first night, I, I cannot even remember what happened. I cannot even remember. I know that I dried at one point and I got back on that train and I finished it. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I did that because you're on stage for the whole time. But every night before I'd walk out, I remembered my my experience with Elizabeth Kemp's workshop, and I and I'd pray to Maria. I had a photo of Maria in my dressing room, and I'd I'd say to her, just as I'm standing in the wings, Maria, you've got to come out with me and hold my hand because I cannot do this alone. And so she did. She did. She was a very hard taskmaster, but she was out there with me every night. So how do you create a role like Callis? Because she's very much in the public consciousness and, you know, it can't be an impersonation because it's a, a character by Terence McNally. So what was, your, what was your research? Well, I read every book I could get my hands on. I looked at videos of Maria. 
Um, but, I, but her early life really resonated with me. You know, she was born in New York. She found it hard to fit in. She felt ugly. She discovered she had a talent and pursued it. And she desperately needed to be loved. So on that level, I understood her very, very deeply. And the fact that I was, that I am Greek and she is, she was Greek. Um, you know, you can play different characters of different backgrounds and nationalities, but there is that, that connection when it's of your own tribe, of your own ethnicity that you cannot fake. And having that helped me enormously. And helped you enormously too with a show like Taxiti, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Taxiti. Written a chance by... To, a cha oh, how do you pronounce it? Taxiti. Taxiti. You pronounce it. Yeah, you pronounce it absolutely correct. Terrific. So a chance to sing in Greek at last. At last, yeah. Look, I did sing in Greek for the movie Head On, a snippet in Head On that Anna Kokinos asked me to sing. I said to Anna at the time, oh, I don't sing Greek. <laughs> it's that whole denial of your culture, right? No, yeah. no, 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 I don't do Greek. <laughs> Again, trying to fit in, you know. Um, so, look, uh, after Masterclass, I um, actually attended a, uh, a presentation of Daxidi at 45 Downstairs, and I loved it. And I thought, bloody hell, I should be in this show. You know, they're Greek. These are Greek stories. Um, and so I had a meeting with Helen and her husband, Andrew Patterson, the musical director, um, and Petra Kaliv, the director, and had a bit of a sing. And, and we talked about our parents, their journeys. And, and this taxivi, which means journey in Greek, is primarily about the Greek women who who left their homes and their families during the 50s 60s and 70s and journeyed out to australia all all over australia to start new lives some some were promised to men who were already here you know they came out as as brides that were about to be and there were funny stories and and there are tragic stories and and it was a time for me to honour my mother and my aunts and all other women who so bravely left their homeland to start, you know, a life that could have just, could have been on Mars for all they knew. Um, and uh, it was wonderful because, you know, our show was simply staged with, you know, the monologues were all in English and the songs accompanying the various monologues. I played five different women, as did Helen and Artemis Ioannidis, the other actress in the show. And we had projection of, of women and, and the villages and, and the war-torn, you know, particularly in Cyprus, um, uh, when, you know, the Turkish divided, the Turkish government divided Turkey and uh, Cyprus in half during World War II, what they had to go through. And my mother's photos were projected on screen as well. 
And that was my parting gift to my mum before she passed away, that she saw remnants of herself, you know, on screen and her story, you know, being told as well. Um, the beautiful photos of my mother dancing on the ship with all the other Greek ladies in line, you know, heading to a, a country they knew nothing of. Um, it was just, Taxidi is very, very close to my heart to this day. Um, one of the smallest shows I've ever done, but I think one of the most gratifying and and personal shows I've ever done. Yeah. I wish I'd seen it. Sounds, sounds beautiful. Well, we wanted to bring it to Sydney, and if there's any producer out there listening, do yourself a favour and and produce Taxidi for and bring all it, the yeah. other. Bring it. Bring it to Sydney, I say. Oh, someone's bound to be listening. Fingers crossed. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Maria, do you read reviews? I have to ask performers this. Yes, I do. You do? I'll be very honest. Yes, Good I do. On <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> do you Some do people you, don't. I do. Do you put much credence in them? No, I kind of uh, read them as if I'm the public. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. I, I try not to personalise it. Yeah. Um, I like to, to gauge what critics have perceived of whatever I've been in and, yeah. But, you know, you can't really take it too seriously either. But they can make and break a show as well. We can't, you know, forget that either. It's funny, when the reviews came out for, for Masterclass, I literally went up to Cameron Lukey and I said, Cameron, now be honest with me. Have you paid for these reviews or what? Because <laughs> <laughs> I really, I do not remember my first night. I was like I was on another planet. I was on another planet. What makes you happy, Maria? What makes me happy are my animals, um, my family, cooking, watching great films, singing, obviously, being a voice for the voiceless and obviously performing. Yeah. They're is the there things a, that make me. Is there a role that you would still like to, to get your hands on? Oh, well, yeah, I guess. They have written a musical about Rebecca, the movie. Yeah. It's a German musical, actually. It's called Rebecca, and I want to play Mrs. Danvers. Great role. Great role. Very much like Jerry, but great role. It was meant to be staged on Broadway several years ago, but it didn't go ahead. And it's funny because the actress who ended up playing Madame Jerry, our version, our Australian version for the North American tour, um, she was actually cast to play Mrs. Danvers. Because she actually contacted me not long ago when Andrew was showing all his um, film musicals on YouTube, I think it was. That's right, she, yes, yes, during lockdown yes, because the, the Australian production is filmed. Yeah, exactly. And she contacted me to say um, how much she she loved what I had done and... I was quite chuffed about that, to be honest. I bet. I bet. Yeah. 
Oh, there you go. We've got to get we've got to get Taxiti to Sydney, and we've got to get you and Rebecca, and then uh, correct. We'll be well and then, the world. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Maria, <laughs> it's been a, an absolute joy. You've made me a very happy person uh, talking to you this well, hour, and our listeners are going to be absolutely delighted too with the stories that you've shared. So, thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. This has been great, and um, yeah, I have to say that I've been interviewed quite a few times and I've absolutely adored your questions. They they surprised me and, and had me talking about things I had long forgotten. So thank you. You're, you're wonderful. What a fabulous career Maria Mercedes continues to have. And if you've been witness to any of those performances, you know just how magnificent she is. I still consider Nine one of my top five theatre experiences and her performance as Louisa Contini absolutely contributes to my reasoning of that. My guest next time on Stages has recently retired from a full and generous life in the theatre, serving community theatre groups with direction and design and navigating an impressive career managing theatre venues around the country. He is Mr Bob Pete, a lovely bloke and it was a joy to explore his wonderful story. Bob began a performing career as one of the puppeteers with the Tintooki Puppet Theatre, one of Australia's first forays into puppetry, enjoying extensive tours around Australia and internationally. Great history and anecdotes, I promise. So please join Bob and I next time. Thanks for joining us today. It's always a joy to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to The Stages Podcast. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.